Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Joel Simon and Robert Mahoney. They are the authors of a brand new book titled The Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free. We've had a lot of information coming at us the last two years. Some of it was the truth, and much of it was not. You'll find that this is a global conversation, comprised of stories from all over the world. And it's also an examination on how censorship affected all of our individual experiences with COVID-19, no matter where in the world we live. I conducted this interview in concert with Town Hall Seattle. They have a wonderful podcast full of intellectual examinations and great guests. It's called In the Moment. And if you want more conversations like this one, I encourage you to subscribe. Now, censorship is a global problem that became even more prominent during COVID-19. And it's not just the censorship like you imagine. I started this conversation asking the authors to define two different types of censorship that they write about. And to help you track their voices, Joel Simon kicked off the conversation, and Robert Mahoney answers my second question. I think when people think about censorship, they think about, you know, the kind of black pencil going through the copy, or they think about the government official sitting in the television studio saying, "Uh uh-uh, that doesn't go on air, sort of top-down hierarchical censorship. That still exists in some places, but it's not really the censorship of the internet age. So we sort of identified two kinds of censorship, the more traditional authoritarian censorship, which has been updated and modified by countries like China and Iran, countries that are fundamentally authoritarian. And they put people in jail. They prosecute them for saying things they're not supposed to say. They do all the things that, you know, repressive governments do. But there's another kind of censorship that we call censorship through noise. Sometimes it's called flooding. And this is a a modern form of censorship in which political leaders and people with authority basically just try and overwhelm you and overwhelm the information system and just change the subject and distract and confuse people. And it really has the same effect, which is governments have a narrative, a story that they want to tell. And they can prevent others from telling their version by repressing them and putting them in jail, or they can prevent others from telling their version by simply distracting people and overwhelming the information system. So the government narrative is the preemptive one, the one that people actually hear. Yeah, you refer to it a couple times in the book as censorship through noise. So when it comes to COVID-19, which is what your book is focused on, really, the effects of uh, how COVID-19 amplifies some of these issues, what did it reveal about censorship, the illness itself? Well, it revealed that in many ways, um, the traditional forms of censorship, such as seizing the choke points of communication and controlling the flow of information don't work anymore because there's this beast out there called social media. And there, even in repressive countries like China and Iran, people can get information from social media. The problem we found with COVID is that they got bad information information that actually made them sicker. Do you think it was important when we think about censorship and and how it all went with the pandemic? Do you think it was important that it started in China versus that it started somewhere else? Yeah, Yeah, I think I think I think it was extremely important. 
I mean, I think it was not, not just important, I think it was fundamental. The nature of the disease and the way it spread, the fact that it originated in China, gave it an enormous head start because the reaction of the Chinese government when this strange, mysterious disease started to emerge in Wuhan was to cover it up, to suppress it, to suppress it for strictly political reasons having nothing to do with public health. And the Chinese system of, of repression, which in the book we call just-in-time censorship, that's the thing that's complicated about China. It's a very diverse, vibrant, and active information space. But when there's a crisis, the government has this ability to crack down and use the technology it identifies keywords, it tracks different kinds of social media groups, and then it sort of selectively applies more repressive strategies, arresting critical bloggers. We tell the story of one blogger in the book who tried to break the information blockade and, and ended up in jail. So it really got a head start because the reaction of the Chinese government, at least initially, and the, their strategy changed as time went on, but their initial reaction and their knee-jerk reaction was cover up suppress information, manage the crisis by censoring it. And coupled with that great uh, ability that Chinese state has to control information, it also, because it's the world's leading surveillance state, it has wonderful, from its point of view, social control mechanisms. It was literally welding some people's doors shut to keep them inside. That anger couldn't find political or uh, expression. And so the fact that it happened that the uh, virus first emerged in China meant that you had information control, political control, and social control to in institute this policy, which the Chinese call zero COVID. You could not have implemented that policy in most countries around the globe because they don't have those three incredible mechanisms in place. So all that meant that the lid was kept on COVID for longer than it should have been depriving the World Health Organization, depriving epidemiologists, virologists of the vital information that they needed at the very beginning in December and January of the outbreak to stop it from spreading. So we didn't know about it until it had already spread, by which time it was too late. If I could have one other point, because it's, it's such a rich area. I think that the fact that the Chinese government so actively covered up the outbreak actually created the fodder for some of the wild conspiracy theories that just sort of spread along with the disease. You know, did this emerge in a lab? Was it a naturally occurring mutation? Is it airborne? What are the symptoms? All of these questions were not known at the outset because of China's information strategies. And that created fertile ground for governments around the world to exploit the confusion, to create their own conspiracies, and just people who were uh, upset and confused and terrified, frankly, to tap into all of these sort of conspiracy theories, which really undermined the creation of a popular consensus and limited government action in the initial phase of the disease. Hmm. Yeah, and just to identify, and, and yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to identify your voices, though. Yeah. That's Joel yeah. Simon right there. And go yeah. ahead, Robert Mahoney. Oh, I was just going to add that um, in terms of the spread of the virus and news about it, once it became clear that the virus had come from China, China trained all its enormous propaganda artillery on making yeah. sure that it controlled the narrative globally. It shut down any discussion about the theory that this virus might have jumped from a lab 
to the point where even to raise it could be dismissed as being anti-Chinese or racist. It then kept control of that narrative for the longest time to make sure that the authorities in Beijing weren't blamed for this, uh, what was turning into a, a worldwide disaster. So we can't underestimate the power of the Chinese propaganda and censorship machine. It's truly awesome if you see it, what it can achieve. Hmm. You do talk um, about a lot of different countries and their approaches, and I understand why China wanted to control how it was perceived by the rest of the world so dramatically. What I think is sometimes confusing is why was there nearly a universal desire in so many countries, nearly universal, all of the leadership trying to downplay the disease? Do you have a sense of like, why was that a common thread across the entire world in every type of government? I think the reason that that happened, I will say that one of the strange things about the disease was that, you know, it's a global pandemic, but the responses were very much aligned with national governments and political systems that existed in a particular country. But I think one thing that sort of united all of the different countries around the world that engaged in this, I would call it an unprecedented wave of repression. Rob and I called it the COVID crackdown. The reality was that at the initial phase, when very little was known about the disease and how to contain it or treat it or protect people against it, the only tools available to governments were things like lockdowns and restrictions on movement and association that would have grave, grave consequences for the economy. And those consequences would be politically costly. So governments really had two options. They either had to communicate with the public, build trust and a consensus, and get people to accept that certain restrictions might be necessary to protect public health, or they could take the Chinese model and just use the authoritarian structures of the state to compel people to do things, even if they didn't believe it. Or they could pretend that the disease was not as bad as people thought it was, and the experts were all wrong, and we don't need to wear masks, and it's just a little flu, and we could go on with our lives. So that was the response that most uh, governments took initially because it was politically expedient, hmm. and they didn't really have the trust or the capacity to convince people that you know society had to come together to accept certain restrictions in order to protect public health. Hmm. Rob, did you want to add to that? Yeah, in the authoritarian countries that we talk about in the book, they're concerned about their political legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them could not do anything with this unseen enemy. They had weak health systems, underfunded public services. They spent a lot of money on their militaries, but not on their doctors and nurses, as in Iran or in Egypt. The economic fallout was terrible. They take a country like Egypt. It tried to pretend COVID wasn't there. It was only when plane loads of Western tourists returned from a cruise on the Nile and all got sick that it became obvious that COVID was in Egypt. These leaders are not used to being challenged. So if they couldn't combat this virus, which no one could see, as Joel said, they tried to dismiss it as the flu. They tried to delegitimize the doctors and nurses that raised concerns. And the same with the journalists. They just pretended that it wasn't there. During which time, of course, the virus spread even further and made the problem all the worse until it became so bad that they couldn't ignore it. And one final thing, 
they use the military and the police to attack a public health crisis. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't want the truth, they had to bypass the doctors. So in Iran, for example, they used the Revolutionary Guard to go around knocking on doors, asking people to uh, take a sheet of paper, which had some recommendations about how to tackle the disease, but also a prayer from the, uh, the Supreme Leader, and to report COVID cases. Now, these are military people. If you reported COVID, they could take you away to a quarantine center. So it had the opposite effect of mil- by militarizing it. People were afraid to report infections, thereby exacerbating the problem. So they got the public health response completely back to front in a lot of these countries. Hmm. Well, I mean, you do have examples in the book. I think Brazil is the one you highlight where the public health official who's trying to get the information out actually starts to become very popular with the public. Why does the Brazilian president not get on board with that popularity and be like, yeah, look at me, (laughs) like we're figuring this all out instead of denying, denying, denying what that man is saying? Yes, in Brazil, we looked at the, I, we actually spoke with the uh, health minister in Brazil, Luis Enrique Mendata, who led a kind of information insurgency against Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, who was one of the great COVID deniers. And Mendata became a, a sort of a hero. But I think that if, you know, he became a hero to a certain class of Brazilians, mm. you know, maybe the more educated, urban, and sophisticated. Brazilians who were not the base for President Bolsonaro. He's he's a populist. What Bolsonaro was saying was to the people of Brazil was sort of what they wanted to hear. This is a little flu. It's going to go away. You're all going to be fine. We could go out in the street and hug each other. You could see your families. You don't have to worry about your job. You know, that's what people really wanted to hear. And the health minister of Brazil said, well, this is irresponsible and it's just wrong and people are going to die as a result. So he tried to figure out a way to bypass the president and communicate this to the people of Brazil. And he had some success for a while, but he ended up being fired. And the the president of Brazil just went on with his strategy of, of ignoring the health threat and undermining anyone who challenged him. And as a result, Brazil had one of the highest rates of COVID infection in the world and not only did the strategy do enormous damage to Brazil's health infrastructure, it also undermined Brazil's democracy. It's a very fragile democracy. You know, and this is one of the things we chronicle in the book that, that you know, having a president who would sacrifice the life and health of his own population because he saw some short term political benefit was deeply damaging to the institutions in that country. Wow. You actually, I have, I wrote it down because it was so shocking. You cite data from Freedom House, which is a Washington, D.C.-based research and advocacy organization, saying that losses of freedom during the pandemic worldwide is now down to only 20% of the world's population is living in a free country now, down from 60% in 2006. That's a huge figure. That's a huge loss. What accounts for that? Um, I think what COVID did and what we've shown in the book is that it accelerated this trend of growing authoritarianism. We've now come to the point where the gains of the uh, democratization that resulted as as the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of Soviet communism have all been rolled back. 
And about 5.4 billion people in the world now live in authoritarian countries. There are many reasons for this, but one of them has been that authoritarian leaders can capture control of the narrative of information. You can see this in democratic countries, even within the EU, like Hungary, where Viktor Orban, the prime minister, who didn't do too well in combating COVID either, has captured most media. Most media in that country now tow his party's line. The big media companies are owned by his cronies. And that means that they can get away with plundering state coffers, shutting down opponents, shutting out opponents. This is a, a phenomenon which is playing out in many, many other countries, which are nominally democratic. You can run the list from, we've just talked about Brazil, there's Hungary, there's Turkey, all the way through into, in, into Asia. So there is growing intolerance on the part of leaders of the democratic process itself. They can't be bothered with it, and they don't need to be because they can control the communications. The democratic recession, which is a, a term that you, you often hear, did, certainly did not begin with COVID. It was accelerated. These, these are long-term trends. But what happened dramatically during the pandemic was that India, India's democracy was deeply compromised during the pandemic, again, by this sort of populist leader, Narendra Modi, who didn't want to hear the bad news, who covered up and denied the threat, who exploited it for his own political benefit. And India's ranking in a lot of indices that monitor democracy around the world slipped as a result. So India, with a with 1.2 billion people, slipped into the partly free category from the free category, according to the Freedom House calculations. And because of the size of that population, the number of people around the world who now live in free societies uh, declined dramatically. You have other sections in the book. One of them's on surveillance, one of them's on trust, and one's on local news. I kind of want to touch on each one before we're out of time. But since we're talking about this, how would you say the pandemic accelerated the possibilities of state surveillance during this period? Enormously. Um, in writing this book, I came across a term which is quite chilling, which is uh, biomedical surveillance. And that's something which has come up as governments have turned to technology to try to tackle the disease. And my fear is that some of the measures that were introduced during the pandemic to contact trace people for possible infections, to ensure that people were observing quarantine or wearing masks or weren't infected if they entered a shopping mall, some of those technologies will remain with us. And we look at examples in India, and uh, in Israel, and uh, not to mention China, where this is actually the case. One of the big problems that happened during uh, COVID is that some 30 to 50 countries rushed in these tech, uh, technical solutions to try to monitor the, uh, the spread of the disease and stop it without giving adequate consideration, let alone public debate, around the consequences of those incredible intrusions into privacy. So some of these apps, for example, that we were asked to download on our phones could track our location through geolocation. Some of them uh, could be manipulated. 
leave us open to, to hacking. There were few safeguards about the kinds of data the governments were either taking from us or asking us to give. Where would that data be stored? Who would have access to it? And how long would they keep it? These uh, concerns remain to today. Let me give you an example uh, from Singapore, which is a very technically advanced society. And they introduced an app called Trace Together, and they asked people to download it onto their phones. People were skeptical, and this was voluntary, and they didn't take up the, um, the government's request. It was their way of protesting, something that they didn't like. So the government made it necessary. So people had to download it. And they were told, this is a Bluetooth application where your phone with your information on it will speak to someone else's phone with their information on it if one of you is infected and warn you. It turned out then that wasn't good enough and they needed to know where you were and where you were going. So they then introduced a second QR code system that you needed also to have, which could geolocate you. And without that second system, you couldn't enter a shopping mall, public spaces, restaurants. So having told people that this was safe and that it was one application, it then became two. And then the government said, well, of course, this information is secure. It then turned out that the police had accessed this information to catch a criminal or a prosecution. No one knew that the police would have access to this. So you see where we're going on this very slippery slope. We are asked to give up privacy in the name of public health, but we're acting on trust. And trust, as we say in the book, is one of the commodities that's in real short supply during this pandemic. Singapore example is repeated across many countries. And we've ended up, I believe, especially in, in semi-free, mildly authoritarian countries with technologies that we don't know where they will lead. And it's become normalized for us now to give our personal health information to companies on behalf of governments or to governments directly and have that stored in places and on servers that we don't know where they are and mm. what they're doing. Mm, wow. Yeah, I mean, trust, that is another big topic in yeah. the book of, um, I mean, it's almost too big a question to ask, but what happened to trust during the pandemic? The problem was that the, the, the most important attribute that a government has during the initial phase of a pandemic to fight against it, according to the playbook compiled by the WHO, is communication is essentially convincing people, you know, unless you're China and you can compel people, most governments, that's the only tool they have to convince people to change their behaviors in ways that protect public health. And that ability to communicate is made actionable through trust. You know, the playbook for a pandemic is to amplify the reach of experts and to increase trust in those experts so that we so that societies can reach a consensus mm. and so that people believe what they're being told by their authorities the exact opposite happened because trust had already you know been exploited and compromised and undermined and you know in the book we look at the case of the united states i mean this is a global book but i think the kind of the way trust was exploited and compromised and undermined the united states was really a case study mm. 
I profile a, an individual in, in the book, Rob and I, together. We look at this former police officer, now a college professor, who is kind of trying to make sense of the information that he's getting from government officials. And he, ironically, he says, you know, because I'm, I was in law enforcement, I really don't trust the government. So I don't really believe the things that governments tell me. And what we found is, like, I, I think people who are on one side of this issue or another, they may sort of have trouble understanding how people come to believe things that strike them as just clearly just wrong. For example, that hydroxychloroquine is an effective treatment uh, for uh, COVID-19. But it's not that, you know, somebody who believes one thing will stumble on, uh, you know, something else online and say, oh, I believe that now. It's about the community that they're a part of. It's about their peers. It's about the, the network of people with whom they associate. And so if people within that community adopt a certain set of beliefs and latch on to information that reinforces that, it's really, really hard to break out of that bubble. And that's what happened in the United States. We became tribes, you know, like to use masks as just one example, and there are many others we can point to, you know, your mask became an emblem of your political identity. And it was true on both sides. I mean, people who were aligned with, uh, I mean, I think, I think it was certainly more extreme for Republicans who resisted masking and certainly more detrimental to public health. But you see, once wearing a mask becomes part of your identity, you saw people who identified as supporting the Democratic Party as wearing masks in situations where it probably wasn't necessary, where the public health guidance didn't really support it. So that's what happened to trust. It was weaponized and exploited, and it created deep divisions that undermined public health, led to worse public health outcomes, and also undermined the democracy in this country. Yeah, I think, I, I don't remember who you were quoting, but you have a someone saying in the book that belonging was almost more important than truth. It's 100 percent. People, people who are not immersed in this debate don't really see it that way. They just like, how could people believe this thing? But it's really about who the people who are part of your network, what they believe. And if they believe something, they've latched on to some idea. It's very hard to disabuse them. Mm -hmm. Going back to the example of the man that you were talking about, um, the former police officer, when I was reading his story, I was thinking we all very much like to think that we are very rational in how we gather our information and how we make our decisions for ourselves in choosing what we believe. But how are we absorbing this misinformation? How are we, even if we think that we're doing a really great job educating ourselves, how are we ending up in the wrong place? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that framework that, you know, we're, we're rational and we make decisions based on a sort of cool analysis of the information is not correct. I think we're fundamentally influenced by the social, political networks that we're a part of. And that's why leaders are so important. That's why, you know, having a political leader like President Trump, who used this kind of strategy of censorship by noise, who distracted and undermined and attacked experts in order to achieve 
what he perceived as, as a political benefit, which is, was essentially to outrun this disease, to deny its severity, to keep the economy open to the extent possible. He, you know, the thing is, he invested heavily in vaccine development because his vision was that, you know, the vaccine would be in everybody's arm and the pandemic would be over before the election and he would win. And frankly, people don't understand how close we were to that scenario. So I think that it really isn't about, there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of anger at our neighbors and friends and people who are part of our communities who believe things that we don't believe. But I really, Rob and I, I think of doing this book really feel this is about the leaders who created an information environment in which trust was weaponized and the ability to build a political consensus around the most effective and appropriate response to this pandemic was compromised because of narrow political considerations. Hmm. Do you see a, a way that trust can be rebuilt in all of us? Rob, you want to take that one? Yeah. I was going to add first before I tackle that is that to follow on about the, the, the loss of trust and each of us living in our own information bubble, part of the problem there is that the technology, social media platforms, reinforce that because once our small community starts to believe something, we can then go online and find more people that agree with us and never break out of it. And one of the things that we identify in the book has been the upheaval in the traditional news business over the last 20 years as the advertising model has collapsed and what we would call the, the proliferation of news deserts, particularly in the United States, where some 2,000 uh, local news outlets have closed over the last 15 years, leaving hundreds of thousands of people without any form of local news. And those newspapers that have survived have been hollowed out and they've become uh, what we now call ghost newspapers. They don't really have anything substantive in them. So uh, one of the ways I believe that you can start rebuilding trust in civic institutions and uh, is at the local level. And one of the ways of doing that is to have communities whose values and whose actions are reflected back at them in local news outlets, whether it's online videos or whether it's in print, it doesn't matter. What's happened in the United States, which has exacerbated the polarization and the loss of trust, is that politics has gone from being local to being national. Because now all our political news is coming from national outlets or international outlets, which don't really cover what is important to us, but get us really angry at what is going on at the, the, the macro level. So I think that some of the interesting initiatives which are being considered at the moment about how to think of new ways of financing local news, whether it's through philanthropy or government subsidy or a mixture of, of many of those things, is one way out of this terrible impasse that we're in where we have no trust in our institutions. So I would love to see a resurgence of local news reporting where, where reporters can go out, cover the local school, school board, cover the local police department. It is a proven fact that communities that have vibrant local news reporting are better governed, they have less uh, corruption, and they have more civic engagement. 
yeah, you you cite a Neiman Lab study <clears throat> that said that local newspapers were basically little machines that spit out healthier democracies. As a person who comes from a journalistic background myself, I've watched the demise of um, local news in many ways for for years. But how does the pandemic end up spurring that along? The crazy thing about this pandemic was that it, it was global, but it was an incredibly local story. I mean, it was about, you know, where can I get a test? And what is the specific uh, school policy in, you know, that could vary from neighborhood to neighborhood? You know, there certainly were where I live in New York City, things can vary from community to community in terms of the kinds of responses that, that local governments are, are, are taking. And precisely because of that, you like you need local news to ensure accountability. I mean, in the book, we tell the story of a local news organization in Tijuana, Mexico, just as an illustration, you know, but just because they knew the doctors, they knew the hospitals, they knew the communities, they had trust. And so when the local government tried to cover up the extent of the outbreak, they were, were able to talk to doctors and, and find out that the government was lying and demonstrate that and ensure accountability. So I think what we saw for many, communi many communities that didn't have local news during the pandemic really felt that acutely. And from where I sit now, I see all these very interesting, energizing debates about, you know, what, what can we do to remedy that? I mean, I think Rob and I both feel there's no magic bullet, but there are a lot of really good, exciting ideas out there, and people are really starting to talk about it. And if there's one single thing, you know, coming out of this pandemic and thinking about the role of information and the kind of world we want to have and the world we want to live in post-pandemic, you know, it's a world where we have rich information options, where in which we are better informed about our communities, in which we're able to more fully participate in the civic life, and in which our leaders have, you know, it's much more challenging and difficult for them to mislead us. So I think that's the positive conversation that's come out of the pandemic. Hmm. Rob, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I would add that the opposite to is that if you look at countries where the trust in the news media is low, the cynicism is just absolutely rife. Because if you are going to be in a position as a society to tackle the next pandemic, and there will be another pandemic, you need to allow citizens uh, the ability to question the health measures and restrictions on my personal liberty that you're asking me to do so that I feel that at least I have a, a voice in this decision. And once I have been informed, I can then participate willingly in whatever measures you ask me to do, whether it's to socially distance or wear a mask or whatever. In so many countries in the world, we saw the opposite of that with a deep cynicism that the, the citizens of those countries immediately knew that their leaders were lying to them. And if they asked them to adopt these measures, they didn't believe that the measures would be effective. The cynicism runs so deep that there's one instance I give, uh, we give in the, um, in the book where Iranians are really world weary about the information that they get the government. The government was playing down the pandemic and the health minister goes on television and he's infected. And in the middle of uh, an interview, he breaks out into a fever sweat 
and takes tissues and is mopping his brow. On another interview, he starts a coughing fit and he has to cradle him, his head in his, in his elbow, not to spray everybody in the studio. He was obviously lying. Cynicism runs so deep that Iranians thought, ah, actually he doesn't have COVID. He's only pretending to so that tomorrow he can say that, you see, I didn't have COVID and I was cured. That, that's how cynical people become when they're deprived of information. And that's what eats away like an acid uh, trust. So we have to have a way of giving people accurate and timely information so that we can co-opt them into the decision making about public health measures the next time we get a we get a global pandemic and that may be sooner than we uh, than we think yes at least hopefully give us a couple of years off <laughs> that's my I, hope i could use a break yeah. personally yes yeah. a, a little time to be with people <laughs> yes uh, well one last thing you i thought this was so well said that you write that throughout the pandemic Many people felt as if they were drowning in information when, in fact, they were being censored. It's a very interesting thought. Uh, it goes back to that original thought of censorship through noise. And so as we move into this next phase, how do we as citizens address that, if not globally, at least in our own lives? I think that it starts with an awareness of how this information system in which we live in works and how it could be exploited. I mean, you know, one thing that hasn't come up in our conversation today, which is the most terrible exploitation of this, the information environment is what's happening in Ukraine and the way that the Putin government uh, mobilized information resources at its disposal to certainly convince the Russian public that this war was justified. The ironic thing that we chronicle in the book is that, you know, Putin used the pandemic to consolidate power to impose further restrictions on public assembly, on expression. So he felt, you know, more in control of his countries because of the pandemic. It didn't undermine his authority. It actually strengthened it. So uh, fortunately, you know, I think Russia has not uh, succeeded at a global level in the way that, the way that it had hoped. And there's, there's a, you know, there's a very strong uh, information strategy that the Ukrainians have adopted that that's been quite effective. But really, if you look at, you know, it may seem far off to people, but it's it's a kind of lesson in these two competing approaches to information. And I, I think as citizens, we have no choice. It's a burden that we are encumbered with as people who live in this moment. But we have to be actively engaged in the information environment. And we have to figure out to the best of our ability what to believe, what is true. And this is really, really important. I don't think that we can do that without responsible leadership because leaders have tremendous power to influence and manipulate this environment and create bubbles of information that actually undermine democracy. So we as citizens have to hold our leaders accountable and ensure that they act responsibly and use information for uh, responsible means. So, so to me, that's the lesson of the pandemic and that's the wake up call and that's the work that we all have before us. Hmm. Rob, do you wanna add anything? Yeah, yeah I, would, I would just say that on, on an individual level, we have to be as discriminating about the news we consume as the food 
that we consume. One of the things that's happening as the information landscape has become more and more polluted is that there are organizations springing up which are giving kind of check marks to news organizations saying this is a trusted source, this is not a trusted source. Whatever you think of that, it's just one of the things that has arisen as a way of trying to steer people towards sources of factual information. There are many others, but I think in the end, it comes down to us as, as, as individuals deciding, are we getting the news diet that is healthy for us? Where can we go to get a better diet? And journalists have traditionally played a role in sorting through all the rubbish that's out there and trying to bring us some little nuggets of truth. It's incumbent upon journalists, but it's also incumbent upon us to take more time, if we can, to uh, select those sources of news that we believe are giving us what we need. Um, there's just too much out there. But you know what? If you look at the, um, the fire hose, we call it in the book, this fire hose of information that's coming at us. I'm not too hopeful yet that we're going to get there, given the media, the media structure that, that, that we have. And that's where I think, to Joel's point, we need responsible political and civic leadership as well. We can't do it on our own. That's right. Well, the book is called The Infodemic, How Censorship and Lies Made the World Sicker and Less Free. Thank you so much, Joel, Simon, and Robert Mahoney for joining us today. I really enjoyed your book, as I told you earlier. We really appreciate it. It was great to speak with you. Yeah, thank you. It was great to be able to uh, bring some of these important issues to the public. Thank you to Town Hall and Seattle for encouraging this conversation. If you enjoyed it, I urge you to check out their podcast. Just search for In the Moment on your podcast app. I also have a copy of this book, the very one that I read to prepare for this interview, and I will happily mail it to the first person to make a donation to the show mentioning the word infodemic or censorship. Please donate at least enough to cover the postage to get the book to you. There are links on how to donate in the show notes or just visit thebittersweetlife.net and you'll see ways there. And it's a win-win situation. It's a free book and a good read and you'll help keep this show on the air and pay to keep the archives online as well, ready to be found by another new listener who is interested in exploring the world. You can consider it your good deed for the day. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell.